There are three elements that separates a language from other forms of communication. A language must be regular, arbitrary, and productive. Regular means it has rules to it, and order matters. Arbitrary means randomness. There is no relation between a word and its meaning. Like cat doesn't tell us anything about that four-leg feline creature. Neither does mao, mao. sha, or gorbe. The last element, productive, means you can explain things that are new, even things that don't exist in real life. Like elephant ballerina. <laughs> Look at your crea- creative Can you picture mind. that in your brain? <laughs> like this thing has never existed in real life before. There have been elephants. You can picture that. And there have been ballerinas. But an elephant ballerina has never existed, at least to my knowledge, in life. And I just, using a combination of sounds, put that in your brain? This is magic, man. Yeah. <laughs> okay, can you tell us maybe about parts of brain? Yeah, so the brain processes language in these parts, which is why I can transfer that thought to you from my mouth sounds. So there are two hemispheres of the brain, the left side and the right side. The left side is the one involved in language production and comprehension, with Broca's area being the factual physicality of language, like what am I doing with my mouth and vocal cords to produce that. Wernicke's area is more about comprehension and what do those sounds mean. This also applies to sign language, like Broca's area is involved in signing things as well, whereas Wernicke's area processes those movements into language. These areas are just association areas, meaning they don't actually make the movements themselves. They just link together other parts of the brain to make these movements have meaning, slash sounds. And so what happens if there's a problem with these areas? So if there's a problem with Broca's area, you'll have the actual trouble of making the sounds themselves. Like you'll have either a really slurred, mumbled speech or you won't be able to make that thing happen. Whereas Wernicke's area, you'll have no problem producing the sounds. You'll just put them in really weird things or select the wrong words and jumble them all together, which is neat. But it's still really hard for people who can't communicate. The most common cause of this type of problem is strokes. These problems are called aphasias. You can have Broca's aphasia or Wernicke's aphasia, depending on the region. Other causes include infections, head injuries, and tumors. Really, anything that affects the brain. So many health professionals use aphasia and dysphasia interchangeably to reference these disruptions of language abilities. Aphasia is a preferred term in North America, while dysphasia may be more common in other parts of the world. Leslie loves Roger, but Roger doesn't love Leslie. Roger rather likes Lucy. Hey, <laughs> nice. You try, Sherry. Say red leather, yellow leather three times. <laughs> okay. Red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, yellow leather. <laughs> awesome, yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. So tongue twisters help speakers practice with articulation. These sets illustrate the difficulty of the R slash L sound that's prevalent in English, but not so much in other languages. Like Farsi, which Keon speaks, has a re and le sound. And meanwhile, Mandarin has a rang and lang sound with the R and L, respectively, romanized in the pinging. Wait, didn't you just say the same thing? No, they're different. Say it again. Rang, <laughs> lang. <laughs> I, I don't see any difference. Well, this is because of universal phoneme sensitivity. So up until we're around the age of 12 months, you can distinguish these things perfectly. 
But after that, we kind of chop off the bits of the brain that process the other sounds that aren't so much used in the languages you're exposed to during that time. So you're not exposed to those sounds, but I'm also not exposed to some of the sounds that you have in Farsi. Yeah, true. This actually, as we were talking about it, has an interesting method of research. So what scientists did was to play a phoneme on repeat for infants from two speakers. When they get habituated to a sound, they don't care for it anymore. But when they hear a novel stimuli, they turn their heads. And this is kind of neat for doing your research, right? Well, yeah, you're not going to be able to just ask a baby if they can hear a difference. Yeah. <laughs> So I may not be able to ask a baby things, but I can ask you about how your experience was when you started learning English. And I can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I started learning English when I was maybe eight, but that was really different from living in an English-speaking country. In those, <laughs> yeah, for sure. In those classes, when I was a child, it was usually learning about grammar. What is a verb, yeah. adverb, where to put them, and all those fun stuff, right? Yeah, and I think we can relate because we learned French when we're about eight, oh, grade yeah? four-ish. French is when it starts becoming the second language. It's the second official language in Canada, oh, but yeah? it's not like... normal core French teaches you much. Oh, yeah. But like when I came to Canada, I thought maybe I should start from the beginning since I have to talk to people now, right? And write, <laughs> yeah. And write assignments and do presentations in a school. Uh, talking to people? <laughs> doing things? <laughs> Who knew? Hopefully this time around it was a bit easier since I had friends whom I had to talk to. I had to learn in class and so many other things. This kind of helped me to be a better speaker of English, I guess. Yeah, immersion helps a lot. But apart from that, I had to take language tests for coming to university oh. as it is a requirement for non-native English speakers. For those of you out there who don't know about it, English proficiency tests are like TOEFL or IELTS or OSSLT. Yeah, that one's the If you're in one. Ontario, for sure. They typically are made from different sections of reading, writing, speaking, and listening. Trust me, they're stressful to get ready for. But now that I'm in university, I think they're for sure necessary. Because if, say, I couldn't pass those tests, how would I even survive in university with all the lectures that go by so fast? Oh, no. How do you get ready for notes? <laughs> I kind of find my note-taking method a bit funny because lectures go by so fast, right? So mm. I write down words in both English and Farsi. So if I think a word is too long to be written in English, I switch to Farsi. <laughs> like, like the word environment in my language is just two syllables. So I rather write that in instead of writing like 11 letters next to each other. <laughs> I, oh my gosh, I just kind of slur them all together yeah. and hopefully I can <laughs> decipher it later. Yeah. <laughs> But you know what is the main question? Yeah, what, what am I doing in radio? right now <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting as an one. ESL student yeah to be honest I came to radio because I wanted to challenge myself in terms of speaking English and as you said like put myself out there and just like practice you know and mm -hmm. then like communication is a favorite thing of mine so I wondered why not yeah nice <laughs> your turn what was it like for you Yeah, my experience was definitely different from yours since I technically learned Mandarin as my first language. Mandarin and another dialect of Chinese that I completely forgot by the time I was four. And then when I went over to Canada and entered kindergarten, I couldn't speak a word of English. It was a sad time, but through immersion, as said before, I learned English really well. 
And now I basically speak it as my native language since I've been exposed to it almost my entire life. Yeah, almost your whole life. Yeah, but now I can't even. I can barely speak Mandarin, and I can't really read or write in it. So English is kind of like my only language. Wait, for you know? writing in Mandarin, would it be like symbols that you have to memorize them? It's kind of a memorization system for the symbols. Like it's a pictogram. Like sun kind of looks like a square with a line through it. Which, if you squint hard enough and use your imagination, it could be kind of the roundness of the sun. Oh, okay. Okay,、it's、so very, you have to use the power of imagination, right? Yeah, it's a very pictorial language, but you、okay. can put together some pieces together to make characters, and those things are put together to make more characters.、Mm-hmm. But at least I got really good at English since it's basically all I communicated with.、Mm-hmm. This brings us to a thing called code switching, like when you speak in another language and then you forget a word and you just suddenly, oh nope, I'm just gonna use the word from、yeah. that other language. <laughs> Like I do it with my parents a lot because I try to speak Mandarin to them, but then I don't know the other words fast enough, so I just use English. Let's talk to someone who knows lots about languages. Sherry had a chance to sit down with Caleb Gordon, a language enthusiast and a conlanger, which is a person who makes languages. Caleb will be studying at University of Victoria in the upcoming school year. All right, Caleb. Thank you for meeting me here. You're welcome. So we have a couple of questions for you about language. And you are interested in conlangs, as you stated before. What is a conlang? Yes,、yeah, so a conlang is a constructed language.、Um, I'm currently going into linguistics, and conlang is actually kind of what got me into linguistics. I think a lot of people, when we're young, kind of invent a secret language. <laughs>、um, I know I was one of those kids. I used to write a lot as a kid, so I'd invent secret languages for my, you know, secret worlds or fictional、mm-hmm. scenarios. I'd doodle little fictional alphabets in the corner of my pages. Um, but I think when a lot of conlangers move into creating languages as adults,、uh, we start trying to think about what what can this be used for? How can we use this to explore linguistics? How can we make this as realistic as possible?、Mm-hmm. So people make conlangs for a bunch of different reasons. I think a lot of people who don't really know anything about conlangs have heard of things like Esperanto. Yeah, that's that、yeah. was something before. Uh, so Esperanto is an international auxiliary language. So that's basically a language that is supposed to make communication easier for people who come from various linguistic backgrounds.、Um, other people, like myself, create artlangs or natlangs,、uh, which are used to explore like an artistic concept、oh. or which are used to emulate natural languages as closely as po- possible. Yeah, let's go back to Esperanto. What languages would be the easiest transition for learning that? Uh, so Esperanto combines some elements of Slavic languages, Romance languages, and Germanic languages.、Uh, yeah, talk to me more about those. What are these groups of languages, and how do you define each grouping?、Uh, so groups of languages are usually tracked through heredity. So、uh, if you look at the Germanic language family, which includes English, German, and Dutch, as long, along with a whole bunch of other languages, they all descend from Proto-Germanic, which in turn descends from Proto-Indo-European.、Um, By kind of finding the commonalities between all those groups,、uh, Esperanto can be formed by trying to kind of make a happy medium between all those <laughs> languages,、uh, make it easy for anybody who knows any of those languages—that is, English, French, German, Dutch, Russian, Spanish—to、um, be able to understand it to some extent.、Uh, that's unfortunately one of the big flaws with Esperanto: is that as much as it's easy to understand for 
someone like me who's a native English speaker and is pretty familiar with several European languages, it can be really, really difficult for people who speak non-European languages. Definitely. So when you're making a natlang, as you've stated before, what kind of things do you go through? What are the steps? Um, so linguistics in general is divided into kind of three main branches. That's going to be phonology or phonetics, which are slightly different but overlapping, morphology and syntax. So I generally, and a lot of other people, try to follow uh, those kind of three branches moving through. So for phonology, you want to select a certain amount of sounds and how those sounds interact for a language. Um, you've probably noticed that every language kind of has a different set of sounds, mm -hmm. a different sound to it. And that's not only the specific sounds in the language, like, for example, which exists in German, but not in most dialects of English, mm -hmm. um, but also the way those sounds are combined. Yeah. Like, we talked earlier in the podcast about universal phoneme sensitivity and how you lose the hearing of different sounds after the age of one year if you're not exposed to a language enough. Yeah, exactly. That The study of that would kind of fall under the study of phonetics. Um, next, you might move on to something like morphology, which is the study of words themselves. And the building blocks that create words are, are called morphemes, which is basically a morpheme is the smallest part of a word that has meaning. Mm -hmm. um, so you can tack other things onto it, like prefixes, like un, for example. You have happy, and you tack on unhappy, which creates a different word with a different meaning. And that process is called derivation. So I, as a conlanger, might create a list of derivational affixes, like un, like full, that I can tack onto words to create new ones. Okay, and you make those out of the phonemes you choose. Exactly. Um, I might also, while creating morphology, work on things like gender, case, or plurality. Uh, so when we talk about grammatical gender, uh, oh, anybody yeah. who's studied French <laughs> or Spanish in school is going to be familiar with that. Um, yeah, so French and Spanish have masculine and feminine genders. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's languages across the world that have completely different genders. You might have an animate gender or an inanimate gender. I believe Swahili has something like eight genders. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Uh, and then last, you can move on to syntax, which is basically how words combine. Uh, so when linguists talk about syntactic typology, they're usually talking about word order. So there's six main verb order, word orders, and it's the subject, the verb, and the object, and how they're combined. So the mm -hmm. subject is whatever does the action. So in a sentence like, the man ate the apple, the man is the subject, because the man is doing the verb. Yeah. Ate is obviously the verb, and the mm -hmm. apple is the object. It's being acted upon. <laughs> um, it's being eaten. Exactly. So it's pretty intuitive that in most languages the subject comes first. Um, yeah, English is one of them. Exactly. It's, at least for me, it... It's very unnatural to think about the object coming first in the sentence. Yeah, but I guess that's growing up with languages that are mostly subject-verb-object versus growing up with a different order. That's very Just true. Just like how base 10 for numbers, base 10 is what feels right, but any base really works. It's true, yeah. How does language and culture, culture intertwine? Like, what can a language tell us about its culture? Uh, so obviously they're going to be related concepts. Like, for example... If a culture is not exposed to a certain uh, object or a certain concept, they're probably not going to have a word for it. Like, say there's a desert culture that has never experienced snow. It's very unlikely they're going to have a word for snow unless mm -hmm. they maybe borrowed it from another language. Uh, languages can also tell us about what cultures have interacted throughout history. Uh, so I talked a little bit earlier about parent languages. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that even though English and German are now separate, unrelated languages uh, that are not really understood and mutually intelligible, um, 
they are still related. They have a, a history together. And so mm-hmm. we know that those peoples eventually, in, like way back in history, did interact. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there's also another type of um, phenomenon involving relatedness. It's called Sprachbund. It's a German word. And, <laughs> Can't to explain that one. <laughs> yeah, so basically what that is, is when a group of unrelated languages spend so much time in close proximity that they start borrowing features and words from one another to the point where they actually look related. So one of the most famous ones is going to be the Balkan languages. So that's going to be Albanian, Bulgarian, Romanian, which are actually unrelated languages. They have completely different backgrounds. But because those languages have interacted so much throughout history, for a long time they gave linguists the illusion that they actually were related. Wow. It's like how you kind of absorb some of your friends' patterns. Oh, exactly like that, yeah. Um, The other way around, though, the idea that language itself can influence culture has been toyed with for a little bit. There's something mm-hmm. called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which... Yeah, we... Yeah, I'm sure you've heard of it. Definitely heard about that in psychology with the... Um, is it the one with the numbers? How they didn't have certain large counting numbers, so they weren't able to group large things Yes, as well. yes. Um, the, the gist of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is the idea that language can influence thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of see that, play, like, it's, it's one of those big kind of pop science things. Like, people love to talk about this <laughs> idea of, you know, you've probably heard jokes about, like, oh, German people are more organized because their language is so organized or yeah. things like that. Um, yeah, how um, people who speak Mandarin are better with management of money and resources because there's no tenses. You just yeah. you just kind of don't have the conjugations, I guess. Yeah, who needs those, right? Um, I mean, George Orwell actually plays with it, with his concept of newspeak. Uh, this mm-hmm. idea of like cutting down a language to the bare minimum, using only very, very simple concepts to try to limit people's thinking, because they won't have the words to express those concepts. Um, but in the end... It's, it's kind of still just a hypothesis. If we look at something like Newspeak, you can't actually eliminate those concepts from people's thinking. Uh, you see it all the time with like those internet lists that are like 20 untranslatable words. They are translatable. <laughs> um, it's just going to take a bit more work to get to that concept in English. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still in English, you know, can feel those things or experience those things or think about those things, even if we don't have the words for them. That is very true. Yeah, well, thank you for your time, Kayla Gordon. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, you too.